History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 69, Musical Thrones. Last week, we had a bit of a change of pace, discussing non-Iranian, non-Zoroastrian gods that were nonetheless embraced and respected by the Persians in the territory they saw as Iranian. This week, I tried to write this episode as one of our usual family tree episodes that I've been doing at the end of every king's reign since Cyrus the Great. I also tried to write the episode about buildings and architecture as a standalone, too. But there's just not enough information on Artaxerxes I to really justify these as standalone topics. I considered combining the building projects and the family tree into one episode to maintain the usual format, but the family tree stuff was just me beating around the bush for four pages. Plus, that ending in 67 was pretty good. In reality, everyone we know in Artaxerxes I's family is either so minor that I can get them out of the way really quickly, someone we've already discussed, or an important player in the next bit of narrative. So I'm just going ahead with the story. For family tree purposes, we really only need to talk about Artaxerxes' more immediate relations. As Darius's sons and grandsons go on, they kept having kids, 
but those heirs are ever more distant from the royal family, and less germane to the topic at hand. Some, like the satraps of Phrygia and Lydia, will pop in and out of our story. Others, like the Megabizid family, have been in the limelight more recently, and there's not much more to say about them. Of course, we all know Artaxerxes' late father, Xerxes. And we've heard quite a few stories about our current queen mother, Amestris. Amestris liked to intervene in her son's politics just enough to make sure all the right people got executed in a suitably cruel fashion for whatever their crimes were. Going into the 420s BC, she was actually still alive, which is pretty good considering her son was in his 60s. And it was the 5th century BC. She had to be in her 80s at least. Which isn't insane, but is pretty damn impressive all things considered. Ultimately though, Amestris did die sometime around the early 420s. Artaxerxes' siblings were marked by tragedy. His eldest brother, Darius, was murdered in the conspiracy that brought Artaxerxes to power. His next elder brother, Histaspes, was killed after trying to seize power for himself. A third brother, or maybe half-brother, Tithrostes, was killed by the Athenians in the Battle of the Eurymedon. His fourth brother, Artarius, was the satrap of Babylon, and had his own adult son, Menosthenes, who fought with Megabyzus. And we will come back to Artarius later in this episode. He notably joined their sister, Amatus, in negotiating the end of Megabyzus's revolt, and last time we covered Amatus's own death and sexual assault at the hands of Apollonides of Kos. Amatus, and by extension Artaxerxes, had two sisters, or at least half-sisters, Rhodogune and Rhatashta, who very well could be the same person. Both are simply mentioned by Theseus and a Persepolis treasury tablet respectively. They're just names to us. Now, we've known in a kind of abstract sense that all of the great kings have had concubines from the start. It's just a thing that ancient kings did. Every now and then there's an outright illegitimate child mentioned, or maybe just a daughter whose name and parentage doesn't get brought up. Those are the children of Achaemenid monarchs and their concubines, the women they were interested in who happened to not be from the Persian noble families. Babylonian noble women, Jewish noble women, really pretty peasant girls. They all fell into the broad category of royal concubines. The noble concubines and their daughters generally counted as dukshish, royal women, as far as we can tell in terms of social status. Illegitimate sons weren't typically in line for the throne, but had all of the other military and political opportunities as their full-blooded Persian brothers. This is where a lot of those unnamed daughters we see occasionally usually come in. As royal family members that were removed from the line of succession, they could safely form marriage alliances with other Persian families, or even provincial nobility, without threatening the dynasty. Because their children weren't legally in line for the throne, 
they couldn't challenge the legitimate sons of the king for their throne. We don't have a lot of unnamed children of note under Artaxerxes I, but there are a few. Eleven otherwise unknown sons are easy to get out of the way, because all I can say is that they existed and they were illegitimate. We've also got one unnamed daughter to address. As usual, we know her primarily because she got married to someone who one of our sources wanted to connect to the royal family. In this case, she married a general named Hieromenes, who was stationed in Anatolia. They had two sons who served on their father's general staff. Though the first four kings gave the Achaemenid dynasty a reputation for households full of official Persian and Median wives, that pattern did not continue into the rest of Achaemenid history. Most of the Achaemenids, as far as we know, had just one legal Persian wife. In Artaxerxes' case, that was the Duke Shish Damaspia. Unlike most of the Achaemenid queens we have encountered, we don't know much about Damaspia. She only comes up in a single sentence in a Byzantine summary of Theseus's Persica. Artaxerxes was young when he came to the throne, and probably unmarried, unlike his father and grandfather. It's possible that Damaspia was a daughter or sister of one of his early opponents, possibly related to Artabanus, or a niece through Darius or Hystaspes. She also could have been an unknown political union. Of course, with a 25-year-old absolute monarch, we can't rule out that he just married his crush either, though events after Artaxerxes died have me kind of skeptical about that possibility. Damaspia had just one son, and following Persian tradition, he was named for his grandfather, Xerxes. By the end of his father's reign, Xerxes was probably in his late 30s or early 40s, and had spent his entire life as the sole legal heir of the largest empire on the face of the earth. But we don't know what responsibilities he might have had. As the sole legitimate heir, Xerxes was in a precarious position. A good Persian king was a military leader, but risking Xerxes' life meant risking the fate of the empire, so he may have been kept away from the front lines. We certainly never hear about him in the Western Empire, but he may have been very important in the East, that's just not documented. Given the conventional royal wisdom that a king needs an heir and a spare, a second son in case something happens to the heir, it seems likely that Artaxerxes and Damaspia had daughters, but we know so little about both Damaspia and Artaxerxes' potential daughters that it's pure speculation. Artaxerxes had the epithet long-handed, which some historians have interpreted as referring to a literal physical malady where one arm or hand was longer than the other. We also know that one of his sons saw many children die in infancy, so it's possible that we're dealing with some kind of hereditary disability in here, somewhere. But obviously that's not the sort of thing we have great evidence for 2400 years ago. Beyond a small graveyard full of siblings and a very small official Persian family, 
Artaxerxes' household consisted of a healthy number of illegitimate children and grandchildren, and this is where the trouble starts. Not long after Amestris died, her son followed her into the grave, probably also just succumbing to old age. According to the Babylonian archives of the Marashu family, Artaxerxes died in late December 424 BC, probably while living in the palace at Susa. And so passed Artaxerxes I, Artaxerxasa, who was about 66 years old and had been the great king, the king of lands, the king of Persia, the pharaoh Arwa-Heshesha, and the king of kings, Kashayathia Kashayathia Nam, for 41 years. His sole legitimate heir, Xerxes, was alive and well to become the new king, Xerxes II. But then a new version of an old question reared its head. What made a Persian king? Was it primogeniture or porphyrogeniture? Excuse the Latin, but being firstborn or being born a royal just don't sound quite as dramatic. See, we actually know a few of the names from Artaxerxes' many concubines because their children turned out to be some very important people. First on that list is Alagune, a Babylonian woman, and her son Sogdianus. We know that Greek sources reported a lot of Persian nicknames as if they were personal names in this period so Sogdianus may be an epithet of some kind rather than an actual name. Since his name means the Sogdian, and his mother is explicitly identified as a Babylonian, some scholars think that Sogdianus may have been Artaxerxes' eldest son, born in 464 during the war against Histaspes, potentially in the land of Sogdia. Despite the name, some historians also suspect that he was the satrap of Elam, since he was already present in Susa in 424. If Sogdianus was born in 464, he was probably Artaxerxes' eldest son, and that may have led to a problem. At least one tradition repeated by the Roman military historian Polyinus claimed that Sogdianus, rather than Xerxes, was the legitimate heir. No modern historians accept that account, as every other source agrees that Xerxes was the true heir, including Theseus, who had the opportunity to speak with eyewitnesses. But Sogdianus could have claimed legitimacy on the basis that he was Artaxerxes' firstborn, regardless of his mother's legal status or Darius the Great's earlier precedent. And in the end, he seems to have done this. He reached out to some influential people in the Central Empire and conspired against Xerxes II. It was really a dream team conspiracy. An important eunuch already at court named Pharnacius and a military commander called Bagoratsos signed on. Sogdianus also had the support of his uncle, Artarius, the satrap of Babylon. Artarius was, coincidentally, the last living son of Xerxes. And he sent his own son, Metnostenes, to Susa to aid in the plot against Xerxes II. 
And so, for the second time, a shadowy cabal of advisors, military leaders, and the satrap of Babylon assassinated a king named Xerxes in the palace at Susa. This is once again one of those things that would seem too intentional if all of our sources didn't agree. And so passed Xerxes II, Kashaya Arsa, who was less than 40 years old and had claimed to be the great king, the king of lands, the king of Persia, and the king of kings, Kashayathia, Kashayathia Nam, for 45 days. Monosthenes was appointed as the Hazara Patish of Sogdianus' palace guard, and Bagoritsos was put in charge of the funeral procession, ferrying both Artaxerxes and Xerxes II's bodies to Persepolis for their respective funerals. Supposedly, Bagoritsos made some kind of mistake regarding Artaxerxes' corpse, possibly violating some religious law, and was stoned to death for the offense. It's also possible that Sogdianus just used him as a convenient scapegoat for Xerxes' assassination at the time. According to Theseus, Demospia died on the exact same day as Artaxerxes in December, but it would not be at all surprising if the truth was that she died with her son in February. The political influence of the Queen Mother is well established, and a coup would probably be wise to remove the king's mother from power as well. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today.
Around the same time that Satrap Artarius was brazenly supporting a palace coup, there were other political movers evacuating Babylon. An indisputably illegitimate son of Artaxerxes had been renting a house in the city, but moved out on February 13th, 423 BCE, right around the time that Xerxes II was murdered. We can thank the Marashu family for keeping such detailed archives to help us keep track of these things. This was Ochus, the son of another Babylonian concubine named Cosmartidene. Ochus was actually the satrap of Hyrcania, but like many Persian nobles, he was able to delegate responsibility to his subordinates and live in the more lively cultural centers of the empire for at least part of the year. There's a chance that satrap of Hyrcania also means that he was either the satrap of Parthia or of Charasmia, and the Caspian steppe as well. Hyrcania itself would have been a pretty minor position for Ochus. Not only was he the son of Artaxerxes, but his full brother, a man named Arsites, may have been the satrap of Assyria, which is obviously an important province. Ochus obviously had connections to the Marashu family, as he was renting a townhouse from them. And in fact, they were probably also managing some of his estates in Babylonia. They are at least well known for managing his wife's estates at Nippur, further strengthening their ties to Ochus himself. Now, Ochus's wife was also his half-sister, through Artaxerxes and another concubine named Andia, once again Babylonian. It seems Artaxerxes had a type. Andia's daughter, and Ochus's wife, was Perisatis, a particularly politically-minded dukeshish. She had major estates in Babylonia and Media, and maintained a network of contacts in the imperial corps that made her quite influential. Andia and Artaxerxes also had a son, Vogapius, but he is only briefly mentioned by Xenophon. Ochus and Perisatis were summoned to Susa when Sogdianus took power, but that is not why they left Babylon. Instead, Ochus was making his own bid for the throne. He had the support of the satraps of Egypt, Media, and probably Armenia. Ochus also seems to have divided Babylonia. Even though Artarius and Menosthenes were backing Sogdianus, many actual Babylonians supported Ochus, including the Marashu family. And I keep stressing it because the Marashu connection is important here. Their records refute the story that Ochus's descendants tried to push. Theseus was told that Ochus got swept up in the moment and was crowned king against his will after Sogdianus murdered Xerxes II. According to the Marashu archives, Ochus was already being treated as king a month before that happened. Within 15 days of Artaxerxes I's death, the Marashu family started keeping records dated to the accession year of Darius II. This is a new phenomenon for us in the history of Persia. As far as we can tell, this is the first time that an Achaemenid king took a throne name, also called a regnal name. 
Regnal names are a pretty common concept used by European monarchs, the papacy, Ethiopian emperors, Chinese emperors, but the most direct inspiration for the Persians were probably the pharaohs of Egypt, who had been using regnal names for millennia. It is technically up for debate when Persian monarchs started using regnal names versus when the Greeks discovered that it was something they did. The first example we hear is about Darius II from Theseus, who actually lived at the Persian court a generation later. But Theseus doesn't report any of Darius's predecessors using them. On the other hand, every single one of his successors will change their name upon taking power. Some historians think that Artaxerxes I was a regnal name. Others think that Xerxes II was one. Some odd ducks even think the practice goes back to Darius the Great. But Darius II is the first time we actually know what a king's given name was, if that's the case. It was, of course, Ocus. Typically, regnal names are used to convey something about how a new monarch wants to be perceived either by comparison to the literal meaning of the name, or to a historical figure who used the same name. Ochus, becoming Darius II, sent a very clear message. Like Darius I, he was not a direct heir to the throne, and didn't claim to be, but the throne had been usurped and defiled. Darius would cleanse the throne and write the empire whether the empire wanted him or not. So Darius II appears on the scene at the same time as Xerxes II and Sogdianus, with the financial juggernauts of Babylonia and several provinces at his back. As 423 carried on, he gained support from the Persian army, but most of the empire seems to have sat back and watched Darius compete with Sogdianus. The military was apparently angered by the assassination of Xerxes II and the execution of Bagoritsos. Sogdianus's own cavalry commander, called Arbarius, defected to Ochus's side. The satrap of Armenia, Hidarnes, did not march into Babylonia himself, but sent the influential noble Artoxeres as his representative. This was the same eunuch Artoxeres who had been sent into exile by Artaxerxes for supporting Megabizus. But this was no time to continue a dead king's irrational angry orders. According to Ochus's son, his father was just swept up in the moment and crowned king. This anti-Sogdianus coalition raised an army in southern Babylonia, preparing to march on Susa. It took months to gather this force. Basing it in Babylon put immense stress on the local economy. Not only was Artarius actively opposing them in Babylon itself, but this army had to be large enough to combat the royal guard if they stayed with Sogdianus. Most historians treat Sogdianus as only having the support of Elam and Parsa, but we don't really know what was going on in the east. Given his name, it's entirely plausible that he had the backing of some of the northeastern provinces as well. 
the Marashu family seized on this as an opportunity to increase their own wealth. Most landholders and tenants alike could not afford to support both their regular agricultural demands and the newly christened Darius's military demands on short notice. To make up for a lost harvest or to hire others to fulfill their military obligations, the landowners of Babylonia had to take out loans against their property in massive numbers. I'll just have to post a graph of Matthew Stolper's book, Entrepreneurs and Empire, about the Marashu. Because the sudden spike in mortgages in year one under Darius II is downright comical. Nothing directly states that this was to support Darius II's army, but there's no evidence of anything else creating massive socioeconomic strain in southern Babylonia in 423. Many of the people who had to take out those loans lost the land they used as collateral, and it went straight to the pockets of the Marashu. It took until late in the year before Darius was ready to make his move. Different sources give different lengths for Sogdianus' time in power, but since Theseus was just one generation removed from these events, I'll stick with his dates. It was apparently August or September now, an absolutely treacherous time of year to fight a war in southern Iran, which may explain why both claimants were open to negotiations. Sogdianus had been stuck in the sweltering heat of Susa, while Darius's allies controlled the usual summer palace at Ekbadana. Darius may have moved to the old Median capital at this point, but he just as well could have been in Babylon preparing for war. Invading Elam from the west was logistically much safer than coming from the north. Darius proposed a parley with his half-brother, swearing sacred oaths up and down that he would ensure Sogdianus' safety if his brother made the same promises. To his credit, as the new captain of Sogdianus' royal guard, Menosthenes told his king not to trust Darius. In all likelihood, the son of the satrap of Babylon was familiar with the new claimant to the throne, from his own time living in Babylon. But Sogdianus trusted his brother and went to meet him. Darius's men seized him and had him executed by burning him over hot ashes. And so passed Sogdianus, who was likely about 41 years old and had claimed to be the great king, the king of lands, the king of Persia, and the king of kings, Kshayathia, Kshayathia Nam, for six months and 15 days. That just left Darius II, called Darius Nothos, or Darius the Bastard, by the Greeks. He was the last man standing in this competition for the Persian throne in autumn of 423, but his new name may have been a tad more prophetic than Ochus wanted when he was weighing his options in Babylon the previous December. Next time, we'll see Darius II face down rebels, have to recapture Babylon, settle family disputes, come to blows with Athens, and maybe even publish the Behistun inscription. Until the next episode, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this podcast. You can also give me a one-time payment through Stripe by clicking on the link 
on the support page or sign up for a Patreon subscription. Where different monthly tiers at patreon.com slash history of Persia will get you access to additional content like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, there's always the great, wonderful, free way to support the podcast, which is telling other people about it. Tell people how great the history of Persia is on social media, where you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter as just History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.